Good morning. So we have a few questions, probably won't get to all of them. I'm curious how the Buddha and those who call themselves Buddhists reconciled their identification as such, given a core Buddhist teaching is that of not-self, non-identification. So I think we can broaden this question to really talk about um, the different identities that we hold or have or relate to and how we might um, view these in, in terms of the Buddhist teachings. In this conventional world, we all have um, different identities, perhaps identities related to race or religion in the note, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, ability, age, um, perhaps uh, certain illnesses. Um, And that's a real part of our lives. It has a big impact. And so the question is, how do we relate to these identities in a way that's skillful, in a way that's onward-leading, So really the question is our relationship to our identities rather than whether we have them. Um, We do, we all have them. So I'm thinking of different ways that relating to an identity, having an identity might be useful. So for example, many years ago I suffered from a certain illness and I identified as a person who had this illness. And it was really quite helpful It it gave me um, context for healing, gave me support around some of the challenges. And then yet at a certain point, I noticed that it was actually um, not so helpful, that it was limiting to identify in that way. So now, even though I have some of the same challenges, I don't identify as, as a person who suffers from this illness. So it was useful, and then it wasn't useful. It wasn't useful when it got to be limiting or contracting in some way. Recently, in the last few years, I've been exploring my identity as a white person. And um, it's interesting because if I don't explore this identity, uh, there's whole ways that I move in this world that... um, cause suffering for others, for people of color specifically. And um, so it's useful for me actually to identify as white and to um, try to understand what that means. What does it mean about my conditioning? What does it mean about ways I act in the world that might cause suffering, unintentionally but still cause suffering? It wouldn't surprise me as a white person that I've said something during this retreat inadvertently that's caused suffering for people of color because um, when we have an identity that's in a dominant group, we often don't understand it as well. So the white, white people being in the dominant group in this country, um, there's a certain, there's more delusion, you could say, And so if my identity as a white person, too, then looking at this, if I see the harm that's been caused, 
over the centuries in this country by white people, my ancestors, um, do I go towards shame and guilt? Maybe that's not a useful holding of that identity. Do I go towards remorse and a commitment to do something to change things? That could be a a helpful, um, supportive um, way of relating to that identity. So as a Buddhist, if I relate to being a Buddhist, that could be helpful in um, having certain teachings, guidelines around ethics, uh, ways to cultivate the heart. It can be useful to identify as a Buddhist. But when I identify as a Buddhist and it separates me from others, when I'm clinging to that identity, you could say and be like, oh, I'm a Buddhist, we're the best, and you're not a Buddhist, so you like don't really understand things and let me enlighten you. <laughs> then it's not a helpful identity. Then, it's, then there's separation, right? So a whole thing that we can look at around identity, too, is are we creating... Um, a feeling of separation and othering others, othering me versus them. Not a useful holding of identity. Are we holding identity because it gives us a way to navigate this world skillfully? I was thinking, for example, a young black man, it would be really, really helpful to know if you live in the city that you are a young black man <laughs> and to know that, that that's an identity that you carry. It could be a life-or-death matter. So we don't pretend in Buddhism that identities don't exist. There is a level where um, we're all the same. This is, this is true, kind of an absolute level. We all have pretty much the same makeup as humans, heart, body, mind. You know, different stories, but, but, but we function astoundingly the same. I remember my early practice being in group interviews, and it was so relieving because people would be talking about what's going on. I'd be like, oh, it's not just me. It's not just me. I might have shared this quote already, but somebody said something about if you knew what was going on in everybody else's heart and mind, you'd be surprised at our stunning lack of originality. (laughs) And yet, if we use that truth to deny that identity is real, (laughs) identities are real, and that they have a real impact, then we're bypassing uh, the work that needs to be done. We're bypassing our own personal Work and we're also bypassing um, social social work that needs to be done. Oppression that needs to be addressed. So it's really about the relationship. When is it supportive and when is it um, contracting? And then I'll say one last thing. Um, Many years ago, when I was in college, this must have been about 40 years ago, I went to a talk um, given by a trans woman, Kate Bornstein. Some of you have probably heard of her. And um, I remember she said, (laughs) um, I think she would now more be called maybe gender nonconforming. I don't even, maybe now she she does call herself differently. But back then she identified as a trans woman. And she said, I wake up in the morning 
And I don't know if I'm a man or a woman. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> and I thought about it, and I was like, wow, that's mind-blowing. Like, how, how opening. Like, how much I assume about life being a woman. So, so there's a way that, like, working with identities also can really open the mind. I've learned so much um, about delusion and opening the mind from, from the anti-racism work I've done, the work around being white. Fabulous. So, another question: Can you talk more about the impatience being anger? What are some dharma around anger? Is it always unskillful or bad? Can it be useful in social justice movements, for example? At one point, I made a list of all the different kinds of anger that I explored in my practice. And I came up with 24 different kinds of anger. (laughs) Everything from killer rage (laughs) to what I call background hum anger, (laughs) kind of the wallpaper of the mind anger, and um, everything in between. So uh, yeah, anger. (laughs) Anger is generally considered an afflictive emotion. And um, if you look at it, most of the time it is. It's turbulent, right? It causes contraction, suffering, sometimes unskillful behavior. But sometimes um, there's a kind of anger that I feel like is close to what I call fierce compassion. And um, you can feel it because it's actually not turbulent, it's 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 fierce. It has a lot of energy, but it also has a lot of clarity. And it harnesses like the energy. Anger has a lot of energy. I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> and it harnesses that energy of anger um, for something that's good and useful. This needs to stop. This needs to happen. Martin Luther King Jr., I think, is a good example of this. Um, you know, there are times when, when he seemed quite angry, but it wasn't an anger that separated. It was a kind of fierce compassion, like, we need to, we need to move forward with this. And um, it gave him a lot of power, but he didn't use it to separate, say, these people are good, these people are bad. He didn't use it towards hate. So when anger is separating, when it, it leads towards hate or blame or it's turbulent, then it's an afflictive emotion and it's not so helpful. But when it's an energy that's, you could say, connected with compassion and clarity, then I would say it's skillful. What is the advisable response when you meet a moose in the woods? There weren't any muffins on hand, so I was unable to test the validity of a favorite childhood book if you give a moose a muffin. 
As you can imagine, this was quite a disappointment. This is not purely hypothetical question. There was a moose, and it was definitely larger than a VW bug. I would say an appropriate response is gratitude. Gratitude that you get to share these woods, this land with such beautiful creatures. Awe at the majesty of the, of the moose. And respect. Respect for um, the space of the moose. I wouldn't feed the moose a muffin. I think that might be a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Moose generally do not eat people, so you don't have to worry about them. (laughs) I'd say even more than generally. I just think moose don't eat people. (laughs) So um, if you see a moose, uh, wow. It opens our hearts, doesn't it? Yeah. And we share this land with many um, amazing creatures. And when I, when I come across what we call wild creatures, like a bear or a moose, or hear the coyotes sing at night, it reminds me of something in my own heart, a kind of um, wildness of being. It's hard to explain, perhaps. But it reminds me of some potential in my own heart. So perhaps we can be inspired by the beings around us, sharing this land with us. Whether it's the little chickadees singing, or the moose as big as a VW bug out in the woods. Thank you.